Welcome to Bloody Violent History. Today's discussion is on royalty, and we have Britain's preeminent expert on the subject. But before I start, let's take a beat and do that thing I always ask you to do. Pause this podcast, locate the share button, and send this episode to your mum, your brother, your friend, your enemy. Do it now, please. Now back to our talk on royalty. We have much ground to cover, and our guest has written many biographies of 20th century figures, including Cecil Beaton, Vivian Lee, the Duchess of Windsor, Princess Andrew of Greece, and the Queen Mother. His book, The Quest for Queen Mary, sold 40,000 copies in various forms. He has attacked the 50 episodes of the Netflix series of The Crown in his book, The Crown Dissected, published in 2019. And so, let us kick on. Welcome to the podcast, Hugo Vickers. Thank you very much. Hugo, I've divided our talk into six sections, and my first question is an easy one. Royalty versus republic. On the surface, a republican system of government trumps any monarchical system with its free, fair elections, rules-based system of government, freedom of speech, government of the people, by the people, for the people. And yet, five out of the ten top countries in the Economist's Democracy Index are monarchies, even though there are just over 40 of these countries in the world of over 200 countries in total. That is one quarter. And so, royalty versus republic. Well, I don't think you'd invent it as a system, but it works extremely well. One of the reasons is that if you have a hereditary monarch, you know exactly where they've come from. Take somebody like the Queen. We saw her as a little girl in a little car at Windsor going round. We know who she is and we can trust her to be entirely on the side of Britain. She has not uh, climbed up the greasy pole of politics. She's there and she knows it. She knows she's there because she was her father's daughter. And um, you get this extraordinary commitment which the royal family gives. They're also, of course, trained from birth for the job, or more or less from birth, which is a great help. So they sort of grow up seeing what happens, and, they, and, and when they take over, they, they're not surprised, you know. And they don't expect to wield enormous power. Um, sometimes, you know, when I've had to defend the monarchy against republics, I think, well, look at, look at what other countries end up with. Who wouldn't want to have had a state like Elizabeth II? They're jolly lucky to have her, because a lot of the people that the so-called democratic system throws up are people like Armin and Abote and Makarios and kind of there's a lot of them are just mass murderers quite frankly. And, and I mean even if you had to name the president of Germany or Italy I mean who would it be? Pretty tricky to do that and the other thing is and Prince Philip always said which I was thought was was, was very sound that um, you know if you have a head of state who's above politics um, then it means that everybody can respect that person, regardless of their political affiliations. It's not divisive. It's not it divisive. And, and again, it, it adds a certain stability. If you remember the time, for example, when Margaret Thatcher was overthrown by the Conservative Party, it was, it was a good feeling that the Queen was waiting to deal with whoever the so-called democratic system produced. You know, at, at moments like that... Yes, she we is weren't a, just in the wind. No, there's the continuity. And I think that's terribly important. And as I say, again, this extraordinary commitment that you get from the royal family. Um, the long-termism. I mean, they talk yes. about a thousand-year reign. And, and, and so obviously they, there is a, a feeling, perhaps Republicans have a feeling that, um, you know, well, why, why should they have it? Why shouldn't someone else? But it, it, it suits the British temperament. It does. And I think there's, yeah, there's something rather wonderful about the whole thing. I mean, there's sort of mystique. There is a mystique, obviously. And, you know, you know when you think of, uh, well, you think of the alternative. I mean, who are you going to get some, I mean, you know, clapped out politician? You know, he'll be just as expensive, if not more expensive, and will probably be rather tiresome. And now we can't send our clapped out politicians to the EU anymore. I mean, the danger is they, <laughs> they might want to become presidents. So they might indeed, something to yes. Be avoided. Um, and, and the extraordinary thing, um, you know, we, we often talk about soft power and, and probably a, people have different definitions of it. But 
even Donald Trump was pretty in awe of the Queen when he came to England. He couldn't. Donald Trump could not wait to come over. And in fact, he came over twice. He went to Windsor Castle for a meeting with the Queen, and then he came on a state visit. And um, I think that yeah, that just goes to show, doesn't it? That would he have wanted to come if it had been President, I don't know, Tony Brown Blair. or Blair or something? <laughs> yes. I don't think so. No, no. He's the sort of man who doesn't really respect anyone, as far as you can see, except for someone like the Queen. Well, he certainly respected the Queen. And actually, of course, if you look at all the heads of state that came over for the Queen's funeral, you had the Emperor of Japan and you had President Biden. I mean, that was an, an unprecedented number of extraordinary people who wanted to be there on that occasion. Excellent. Well, I think that that answers the start of our of our talk, royalty versus republicanism. But we can we can come back to that as we go along. So now I want to talk about a particular royal, somebody that you have written about in in your book. It's Queen Mary, who is the wife of George V. And you, you've written in uh, the introduction to, to your book on Queen Mary the following. In the midst of this shimmering Georgian enclave in bedraggled post-war London, visitors found Queen Mary herself upright, distinguished, dressed perhaps in blue velvet or in pale grey, around her neck her ropes of matchless pearls. Awed strangers spoke of Queen Mary at Marlborough House as a representative of another epoch. But this was a misjudgment, for the Queen Dowager was in no way isolated a magnificent relic, in these 18th-century surroundings. She would sally forth from Marlborough House to listen to the proceedings at a court for juvenile delinquents. And then she might comment, It was most interesting, but I have never heard so many lies told in my life. Or she might enjoy Oklahoma or Annie Get Your Gun. Tell me a bit about Queen Mary. Well, first of all, I'd love to take credit for those lines, but they were actually written by James Pope Hennessy, her official biographer. Oh, yes, so th yes. this is something interesting, very interesting about your book, is that it's the sort of biography of a biography. That's right. Um, I was given the notes that James Pope Hennessy took uh, while he was researching the book. I mean, the, the Queen Mary biography that um, he wrote, I was the first royal biography I ever read, and what a good thing to start with. And written in, what, the 60s? It or? was written in the 50s. It came out around about 1958, I think, and it, um, I, I bought a copy when I was at school in 1965. I can remember it's the afternoon of Churchill's funeral. I bought a second-hand copy for 15 shillings, and it was quite difficult to read at that age. I was only 13. But anyway, I um, uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. And then many years later was given all the notes behind it because uh, when James was asked to do it, he said, I can't possibly do this book. It's not my thing at all. His brother, John Pope Hennessy, the who was direct, director of the V&A and, and the Met and things, he said, what a wonderful opportunity it'll be to study a sort of dying breed of royalty. What, what, was he a, a, a biographer or was he just a novelist? or what was it? Well, James story? is a very, very good writer and he'd written in quite a number of different sorts of books and he had, in fact, written a book about Monckton Milnes, which had had a lot of attention and he wrote a not very good book about Lord Crewe, but that's what brought him into sort of royal, uh, uh, you know, sort of into the royal family's orbit, as it were, because um, um, Lady Crewe recommended him and so forth and Lady Cynthia Colville was involved and anyway, they, they were all promoting him. But it was a funny choice and a very good one because actually it's in many ways quite a naughty book, um, as, that, as that quote showed and I mean, and he a, had to say these things and get it sort of past the royal family well he did and that itself is interesting i mean there's a there's a particularly wonderful line in the book from lord clarendon about queen mary's mother who was enormously fat known as fat mary the duchess of tech and he wrote lord clarendon pope Hennessy quoted him saying no German prince would venture on such a vast undertaking. <laughs> <laughs> Except, of course, an impoverished German prince, like yeah. the Prince of Tech, um, Duke of Tech, and he did. And so Queen Mary herself is a very interesting study. But what Pope Hennessy then did was to write up his notes and he, of his visits to the Windsors in Paris when he stayed with them at the mill outside Paris. The best one is the visit to the Duke and Duchess of Gloucester at Barnwell, where he turns the Duke, who'd always been considered a rather stodgy figure, into one of the sort of 
well, partly comic, but affectionately comic uh, characters, but perceptive and full of... I didn't realise that laughter laughter was such an ingredient to the table at Barnwell. It clearly was. And, and his descriptions of going round the different courts are wonderful. Tom, when I... When I did that book, um, I was often on the tube and I would see a friend I hadn't seen for a while coming up with a great grin on his face and I always knew what it was going to be. They'd love that book. We thought a hundred people would absolutely adore it and nobody else would see the point of it at all. But um, it just took off. I remember reading the reviews about it when it first came out and it's like Queen Mary. People won't even know who Queen Mary was. I mean, And it doesn't really matter, I don't think, because the stories are so good. But you do get, of course, a, an alternative vision of Queen Mary because, as you rightly say, the he was terrified when he did the biography because it had to be approved by the Queen. But Tommy Lassels, who was the, had been the Queen's private secretary, in retirement, actually swung it on the Queen and said, you know, I've read it very carefully and, I, you know, Queen Mary comes out of it incredibly well and, and he, you know, he really built it up. And, and uh, uh, She was dead by this point. Yes, so Queen Mary died in 1953 right. and so the book came out about 1958. Right. Um, strangely, my great-grandmother, the fierce-sounding Mildred Ashton, was a great friend of Queen Mary's. And um, I was digging around some papers the other day, and my Aunt E, Great Aunt E, um, had written a, a note on her mother and her upbringing, and I just wanted to read ah. you this item, because um, she has a reputation, or had a reputation, for um, eyeing up people's property, and then they those people felt that they had to hand those pieces over to her, and that she was she'd come from quite a poor... Uh, situation there she collected a lot of other people's stuff so um, in this thing um, by my aunt it goes as follows my mother had the very deepest affection admiration and feeling of loyalty for Queen Mary all through her life and kept every present she gave her and this was every Christmas and indeed every scrap of paper with Queen Mary's handwriting on it my mother's confirmation prayer book which I have was a present from her with a beautiful inscription inside well, that business about Queen Mary purloining things, it must have happened once because I kept on being told this, but I've never found any evidence for People it. People were sort of hiding their titians. Well, that's what they said. But I think, I think at one point there was, there was a time when if Queen Mary saw, sort of saw that, you know, you had the pair to something that she'd got back at Windsor, she would eye it. But I mean, apparently, if, if ever she did take something, the ladies-in-waiting just returned it the next day. But I think it's a bit of a myth. And certainly I know that the Royal Archives got very very irritated by this thing because people keep saying it. And when I was giving a lecture once, somebody said, well, whenever Queen Mary was walking down Bond Street, people closed their doors. And I said, well, when was Queen Mary walking down Bond Street? She never walked down Bond Street. You know, give me a sound example. And was it the Queen's governess or nanny who said that the, the Queen Mary, who, uh, her dates, Queen Mary's dates, where she was born in 1867, she was the Queen with George V, from 1910 to 1936, and yes. then she died in 1953. So the Queen, our Queen, who's just died, Queen Elizabeth, apparently Queen Mary was a tremendous influence on her education. Very much so. And uh, Queen Mary was very concerned um, that the Queen Mother didn't actually take a great interest in people's, the children's education. That was partly because she was busy helping George VI win the war. And so she was out and about a bit, and partly because she had that philosophy of life summed up in this hymn, All Things Bright and Beautiful, as long as everybody's happy. So Queen Mary was getting in touch with the Archbishop of Canterbury, with with Crawfee, the governess, and, and making sure that the princesses were taken round the Royal Archives, the uh, collections at Windsor St George's Chapel by one of the canons. And she herself, when right. she could, took them on expeditions uh, round London to the Tower of London and the V&A and things like that. So yes. it wasn't just sort of making sure that she did her French verbs. I mean, oh, she, no, no. She, 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 she could speak French, couldn't she, our queen? Yes, she could. Yes, she could. Um, and she was married to George V. He was a sailor king. Well, that's an extraordinary story too because uh, Queen Victoria's eye fell upon her and she, they thought she would be a good bride for the Duke of Clarence. 
So she was engaged to the Duke of Clarence, and Pope Hennessy makes it quite clear in the biography that the only possible interest in being married to the Duke of Clarence was that one day she would be queen. And then, within a few weeks, he succumbs to influenza and dies, and uh, so, Queen Mary's sorry, cast the Duke adrift. Of, where's the Duke of Clarence? The Duke of Clarence was the eldest son of Edward VII, then oh, Prince okay. of Wales. So he was out of the... Event, right. When Queen Victoria was alive, there was the Prince of Wales, Edward VII, and then it would have been the Duke of Clarence. And in 1891, he's engaged to Princess May of Teck, 1892, he's dead. But Queen Victoria decides she's not going to let this girl go. So she steers her to the brother, George V. And she finds that quite embarrassing, you know, because, um, you know, there she is. It's like being set up with uh, the brother of her dead fiancé. But uh, as happens with so many arranged marriages, it proved to be an enormous success. And, and though, as she herself said, and that's what comes out in the quest more than in the biography, you know, he wasn't in love with her when they got married, but they fell in love later and they were very, very close. And and why was why did their characters help each other? What was it, what was it about them? Well, the the king together? was a sort of as you say, he's a sailor king. He's a sort of peppery figure. You know, his children were terrified of it, of him. Queen Mary was very supportive of the king. Um, she was the much more cultured one. Um, but they just they just got on well. I mean, I think again, actually, to be honest, I think Queen Mary rather flourished after he died because she was then able to. She never went back to Balmoral. She loved Sandringham, but she was able then to do what she liked, you know, and, um, with all the collections and things, and living at Marlborough House, and she had a pretty good time. Except, of course, during the war when she had to go to Babington, but that again she loved. She was staying with her niece, the Duchess of Beaufort, and by the way, nothing disappeared from Babington during those five years that she was there. Which and, and she was there because of the Blitz. And things, yes, yes. Yeah. And uh, and then when the war was over, she she said to the Duchess, um, "Oh dear, now I shall have to go back to London and be Queen Mary all over again." Great. Okay, let's talk about something more recent, and that is Peter Morgan's TV show, The Crown. I, I actually really enjoyed the movie um, The Queen, which starred Helen Mirren in the title role, which was written by Peter Morgan. I haven't, I confess, or don't need to confess, watched anything more than the first series of The Crown, and I, I felt relatively uncomfortable watching any more. So I'm, I'm going to have to rely on you to give me some insight into it. But... From an outsider's point of view, it concerns me that this is something that people in the future, or even now, consider um, facts, and actually it's a drama. And cutting ribbons, which is what royals do, is, is pretty dull. So you have to sort of spice it up to make it into something interesting. And there are a couple of quotes from you, Hugo, about the crown, uh, one being, Endless newspapers were asking me to do things like true and false, and they never would let me say all that I wanted to. I got so angry that in the end I thought I'd do a sort of Graham Greene, j'accuse. And the other one, uh, some of the things are absolutely disgraceful. The sort of thing they often do is take two events that did happen and clash them against each other to make something that absolutely did not happen. Well, that's right. Um, I have slogged through every episode of The Crown at least twice and have uh, enjoyed picking holes wherever I could find them, and I found quite a lot of them. The problem about The Crown is that it is lavishly produced, it has very good cast, it's very well written, it's filmed in beautiful surroundings, so it looks incredibly real. And you're right, people think it's fact. And I, even documentary makers come to me and say, we want to discuss Prince Philip not wishing to kneel at the coronation. Well, he's perfectly happy to kneel at the coronation. Um, they didn't worry him at all. Um, and this really is extremely worrying because they will not uh, put in a disclaimer to say that this is this a sort of drama based on real-life people. Uh, and in fact, they even sometimes put in real footage, which makes it even more, you know, authentic looking. Or uh, propaganda, I mean. Yes, yeah. exactly. And uh, and the worst thing that they did, really, was um, there was an episode about Gordonston, who you saw um, 
a sort of rugger ball and some muddy muddy boots. And when the when it came up on the screen, Gordonson, I thought, oh no, here we go. And I wasn't disappointed. First of all, you had a lot of Prince Charles, uh, you know, rain pouring in on his bed and being made to go on ghastly runs and terrible things like this. And then they also had a flashback to Prince Philip. And clearly, you could sort of see them in the office thinking, well, hey boys, you know, Prince Philip uh, uh, must have hated Prince Charles to send him to this ghastly school. We must uh, must make his father hate him to send him there as well. So they cook up a scene where Prince Philip um, punches a boy or gets into a brawl with him. So his his uh, half-term is cancelled. He does not go to Darmstadt. His sister then flies over from Darmstadt and is killed in, a, in an aeroplane accident. And he then goes out to the funeral in Darmstadt where he meets his father and his father says to him, it's because of you, boy, that I'm burying my favourite child. Well, no brawl, no half-term. He wouldn't have gone to Darmstadt. His sister Cecile did indeed come over. Um, uh, she was coming over to a wedding, in fact, uh, of her brother-in-law. And the plane in fog hit a factory chimney in Ostend. And she was killed with her husband, her two boys, her mother-in-law, various other people on the plane. And also she was heavily pregnant at the time and the baby was born and died in the accident. And they linger on the sort of conflagration for about five minutes. His father then came to collect Prince Philip from school and took him over. It must have been a terrible journey. And the fact that they could do that to him, to, to turn him into something that making him responsible for his sister's death is really beneath contempt. Yes, and especially making a child responsible for something. Yes, and Prince Philip himself, I, I happen to know, was extremely upset by this and uh, not displeased when I jumped up and made it clear that that wasn't the case. Yes, unfortunately, you know, people want soap opera, so they're, they're going to uh, want to focus on the addicts, the stupidity, the delinquents, any kind of um, wrinkle. Well, yeah. And as we've said, royalty is a, a lottery in a way, who, who you get. Well, uh, yes, I mean, and then, of course, there's, there's you know, the, the Queen Mother had two nieces who were in a state mental home in South London somewhere. But they were no blood relation to the Queen Mother at all. This all came through the Clinton family. Um, and uh, they actually have the Queen Mother insisting that these girls are shoved out of view because it'll look bad for the monarchy. You know, I mean, this is ridiculous. A complete irrelevance. And totally, totally untrue and totally unfair. And then you mentioned the thing about clashing things together. Well, there was this, you know, the, the, Jackie Kennedy, the Kennedys come to, to dinner at Buckingham Palace. And yes, Mrs. Kennedy did say a couple of spiky things about it to people like Gore Vidal and Cecil Beaton, who duly reported it. What, about, about sort of shabby? Yes, that sort of thing. And um, and then, uh, so, so then you have a, a scene where the Queen goes to Ghana to spite Mrs. Kennedy. Well, the Queen did go to Ghana to keep Ghana into the Commonwealth. She didn't, in the Commonwealth, she didn't go there to spite Mrs. Kennedy at all. And there certainly wasn't a meeting between the Queen and Mrs. Kennedy after the initial one. I mean, the whole thing's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, and a visit to Ghana by the Queen would be organised by the government, wouldn't it? Very much so. And it was actually a very controversial visit because Macmillan wasn't at all keen for her to go. They sent Duncan Sands out beforehand. And the Queen actually said, you know, how stupid I would look if I didn't go and then Khrushchev did go the following week and um, it was very important very brave of her to do it. She had an amazing ability didn't she um, to focus common sense on a problem. Totally she, she was not a philosopher but she had a very very good um, balance of common sense and she was very straightforward. She also had a very good memory which I think is a very useful attribute for a sovereign constitutional monarch and yes she just i mean there's another wonderful incident in real life now not nothing to do with the crown when she, she was in pakistan and the president tried to stop her to going into some remote um mountainous place uh because it was too cold and um eventually they sat down and they worked out if they gave up their Sunday morning and they shifted a hospital visit, she could get up there and her face beamed with a smile because she didn't want to disappoint the people who had been expecting to see her. She yes. was incredibly conscientious. And she didn't like being steered. Um, the last time I saw our Queen uh, in the flesh was at Battersea Dog's home, probably about 10 years ago now. And I was there because we'd done some, uh, where I used to work, we'd done some fundraising for the dog's home and, and bought them a kennel or something like that. Anyway, we're all asked along. 
And um, she came along with uh, Sue Hussey, her lady-in-waiting. And um, they were all lined up with various dogs on display to, to be sort of for her to say hello to. And they got this ancient, rather decrepit corgi, which had been wheeled out, supposedly, because the Queen would be delighted. And at the other end of all these dogs, there was a, a sort of scar-faced bull terrier sitting, you know, how they do with their legs sort of slightly splayed, you know, plonked <laughs> on the ground, sort of puffing away. She walked straight past the corgi and had a long and, and, and by all accounts, excellent conversation with the bull terrier. Yes, she did actually have a, a great gift of being able to walk right past somebody without seeing them, without offending them too. I mean, you know, their person would have, she would, of course, have seen them. And equally, every now and again, she would swing round and, and suddenly talk to someone or say something. I remember at St George's Chapel, um, uh, I'm, I'm a steward there, and on Easter Sunday I was holding a door open, and she suddenly swung around and said, was it you the other day with that woman with the nosebleed? And this was on Maundy Thursday. I mean, old people aren't meant to remember things which happened three or four days before like yeah. that. And so Incredible. I said, no, it was another steward. And then she gave a very wonderful description of this poor woman. She said, I longed to tell her it wasn't the first time it had happened. <laughs> pools of blood all over the place. I think the first time my father... Um, uh, directed her to her seat in Westminster Abbey because he was the he was the head steward. Uh, he walked up the aisle at uh, Westminster Abbey and at the top you yes. go through the organ screen yes. and then the Queen's uh, pew is just, um, or seat, is just on the right there. And he walked up, probably holding his breath the entire way, and turned left, you know, I think, <laughs> in a moment of panic. And she just sort of, by all accounts, she just sort of rolled her eyes and turned right. Yes. She wasn't going to go in the wrong direction. I think she rather enjoyed that sort she, of thing. I, yes, yes, by all accounts, those sort of yes. little comic moments made up for a, a lot of yes. dreary work that she had to do. Um, and other characters that are portrayed in The Crown, before we move on to the next bit... Um, you've got, uh, we've talked a bit about Prince Philip and the Queen Mother. What, what about the sort of Prince Andrews and Prince Harry's, you know, the sort of, do we call them the delinquents? But I mean, you know, they're the, or the spares or, or whatever. I mean... Well, we're going to get a lot of that. We get boost certainly much about Prince Andrew. Luckily, if I remember rightly, it was only sort of Falklands-ish time. Um, it hasn't gone up oh, right got... to the present day. Okay. But uh, Princess Margaret comes in for a lot of stick. You know, if you if you um, only knew about Princess Margaret from the crown, you'd come away with a very dim impression of her and not at all like the real person. And that, that's always the problem. You know, again, it's like they turn them into these sort of tabloid joke figures. And... Yes. So uh, an example of Princess Margaret, what's her, you know... Smoking, drinking, and you know, coming back, you know, there's a Parties scene... Parties and that's it. Yeah, I mean, you see a scene... Oh, and there's a dreadful scene with Lyndon Johnson when they're t telling silly jokes and things. I mean, it's unbelievably... Um, I hardly bear to talk about it, to be honest. It's so demeaning. Um, but it's inevitable that they would portray her like that. And then, of course, I mean... You know, Prince Philip's mother, she is another character in The Crown. And, and of course, very little about what's, um, what relates to her is true. Well, uh, we could talk about her now. Yes. Um, that was going to be a, a separate section. But why don't we, we talk about her? So she was Alice, Princess Andrew of Greece, which is a bit of a mouthful. She was. I mean, she was uh, born a Battenberg princess, and um, uh, she is a great-granddaughter of Queen Victoria. She was actually born rather dauntingly in the presence of Queen Victoria, who had taken a great interest in, in her granddaughter because uh, Victoria, the mother, was the daughter of Alice of Hesse, and Alice had died, so, Prince, so Queen Victoria kind of adopted um, her granddaughter and kept her with her. So, and she was actually present when the child was born. Oh my goodness! In Windsor Castle, a catcher's glove. <laughs> <laughs> and um, she was born um, with her eustachian tubes blocked. So a lot of people thought she was very dim to begin with, and it was actually her German grandmother, Princess Battenberg, who worked out that she couldn't hear. That she couldn't hear, uh, and she was. Her mother was very severe with her. She had to learn to lip-read. She lip-read in several different languages. People used to put their hand up across the room so that she couldn't read them. She could read silent films, of Was course. Was she always deaf? 
Yes, yes, she was. She could hear a little bit, right. and she could hear vibrations like re- deaf people can. But she herself, of course, rather, she became slightly intimidated because you know because she couldn't hear. She she barked a little bit in her speech, and you know that sort of thing. So she yes. looked, sounded a little bit fierce. Oh well, yes, whenever you get a room full of elderly people and yes, all, all together. That um, does it happen. It tends to get rather loud, doesn't it, as they you know, shout to hear Yes, I mean, it's very difficult, very difficult. Um, I mean, Lord Mountbatten, who was her brother, was rather sort of sorry for her that they didn't... They said, you know, no concession must be made to her. She follows the conversation or she doesn't. It's up to her. And she did follow the conversation. Gosh. Then she marries Prince Andrew and goes off to live in Greece. And he is... Um, who is he? He is a son of George I of Greece, who was a Danish uh, prince who'd been sent down to Greece to be king. And um, so that's not particularly easy because one of the requisites of being a king of Greece is that you need to have a suitcase permanently packed. You never know when you're going to go into exile next. And they were in and out of exile and they had the Balkan Wars and all sorts of things. And of course, by the end of the First World War, everything that Princess Alice had known had been overthrown. All her, you know, her uncle, the Grand Duke of Hesse, was no longer reigning in Darmstadt. Uh, All those German emperors and people, kings and so forth. They were all chucked out. All the Russians? And the Russians had all been murdered. I mean, her her aunt was Alex, the Tsarina, and her other aunt, Ella, um, the Grand Duchess Elizabeth, was thrown down a mine shaft. So Princess Alice had a lot to put up with. And so in part of her life, she, she has a sort of breakdown. She did. They lived in exile, and of course royalty don't like being in exile. They were in Paris, and they had to very much depend on on rich relations, of which there were a number of them around, like Edwina Mountbatten and Princess George of Greece, who looked after them, educated Prince Philip, both of them, by the way. And um, so... In 1928, she began to act very strangely, and she'd sort of got involved with Ouija boards and things. There were a lot of people who were trying to, you know, link people across the divide. That was the whole thing which was going on with dead relatives from was the First from, World War. Yes, yes. So contacting soldiers. Yes, yep. all that sort of thing. And um, anyway, she she was she was put into a clinic, and she was there for quite a long time. And so, you know, very difficult for Prince Philip. I mean, one day. It was, in fact, in 1930. His grandmother takes him out for a picnic. And when he comes back, his mother has gone. And the men in white coats have come along and taken her away and put her into a clinic. And he doesn't get a birthday card from her for the next seven years. He only saw her a couple of times. I I think he didn't even know whether she was still alive. And then after she got out of the clinic, she drifted around Europe and sort of stayed with various people discussing sort of um, religious matters and things. But when her daughter was killed, the one we mentioned before, Cecile, in the air crash, she felt she was needed as a mother again and she came back into the royal orbit and um, then wanted to take Prince Philip to... Athens with her, which she did after he left school, but only for a little while, because, interestingly, until King Constantine was born in 1940, he was the eventual heir to the Greek throne, so there could have been no marriage to the Queen. He would have ended up as King of Greece if, if people had lived as long for as they did 10 in, minutes, in 1964. Well, he yeah. might have done a better job, you never know. Yes. But anyway, it would have been difficult. And was that the time when he had to escape in a basket, or was that much earlier? That was as a baby. Yeah. That was as a baby. But um, anyway, they, um, George VI and Mountbatten and indeed the King of Greece all decided that it was a better idea that he should come over and serve in the British Navy, which, of course, was an enormous success. Yes. And, and the rest she, you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And she, and she um, in the Second World War, she was in Athens. Well, Princess she? Alice went, was in Athens, and she was more or less starving during that time. And if anyone sent her food parcels, she just took them straight out to the nearest orphanage or went out and gave food to the soldiers at, you know, on guard outside. And she hid a Jewish family at great danger to herself. And there the deafness came into good effect because if a German officer came to discuss something with her, she just pretended she couldn't hear what he was saying and they just thought, silly old woman. Yeah, and she was a nun at that point, was she? No, not quite. She no. became became a nun after the royal wedding in 1947. So about a year later, she founded a sisterhood based very much on what her aunt had done in Russia, the Grand Duchess Ella. But the difference between those two was that Grand Duchess Ella was incredibly rich, so she could build a convent and send out these nursing sisters all all over the place. Princess Alice never had any money, and she wasn't as strong physically and mentally as... as the aunt and so it was very well thought out but it didn't really work in the end 
But she was always dressed as a nun from that moment onwards, which she found very convenient, by the way. And you see that extraordinary picture at the coronation. Even her. more extraordinary, but the fact is that she went over to Balma in Paris or somewhere and had a special nun's robe run up for her. But she knew what she was doing. I mean, the Cecil Beaton, who was in the Abbey, said this extraordinary figure of Prince Philip's mother in the grey draperies of a nun. I mean, all these other figures wearing kind of very strange and colourful uniforms. And there was this very severe figure. She stands out. She certainly does. Let's go back to what I was going to talk to previously, um, which was some of the mad, bad and bonkers royals who, um, by luck or, or not, we have had to experience as a, as a nation. And they're not always the person who's going to necessarily or became the king or queen. But um, what about the Duke of Connaught to start with? But the Duke of Connaught was all right. He was the son of Queen Victoria, her favourite son, and he lived a very long time. And he was uh, extremely dutiful and uh, he was everything. You know, he'd been Governor General of Canada and he was a field marshal. And oh, he, so he wasn't bonkers. So he wasn't bonkers. Oh, right. But, well, I mean, you know, if you the, the trouble with the Duke of Connaught, they said, was that this is perhaps the thing which is uh, spreads with royalty is that if he told a joke, people laughed at it. And so he, 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 he began to think he was funny when he wasn't funny at all, <laughs> you can imagine. Yes. Um, but um, he was a great character, the Duke of Connaught, and he was a great ladies' man as well. He was always sort of uh, uh, heading off into uh, difficult waters. But I mean, I suppose you think about George III, that was a sort of problem, and he had to be put away and spent his last, yes. last um, years in Windsor Castle. Tommy Lassell said about the monarchy that occasionally, it's a bit like a rosebush, occasionally you have to chop off a head to keep it going. Yes. And there is a system in place for these things if they happen. And it's remarkable how often actually heads don't get physically chopped off when you consider some of the people who uh, were wearing them. Uh, and, I mean, George III, the madness of King George, and his son, George IV, I mean, couldn't be more different characters. And it, George III was mad, but I, uh, towards the end of his life, he ruled for, what, 60 years and was a sort of farmer from, yes. from Verdun. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Whereas George IV was, behaved pretty badly and wasn't very popular, and yet we have wonderful treasures today. I'm just going to say, I mean, you wouldn't have Regent Street, you wouldn't have Carlton House Terrace, you wouldn't have the Brighton Pavilion, all those things at George IV. And, of course, actually, so Charles II, again, was a, would have been a very profligate king and <clears throat> the, the keeper of the Privy Purse, if he existed in those days, would have been having a terrible time trying to keep the finances in order. But look what they all did, you know, rebuilt huge parts of Windsor Castle and made it all wonderful. And sometimes it seems that how, how a king or queen is remembered is whether they were popular despite their behaviour. So George IV was not very popular because, I don't know, anyway, he, the press didn't like him and he got, a lot, he got bad press and he behaved quite badly and he behaved badly towards his wife and all sorts he of did. things. Uh, whereas Edward VII, was, um, who was Queen Victoria's son, was pretty badly behaved and, and pretty dodgy in what some of the things he got up to, but people kind of liked him. Well, he was <clears throat> two different people, wasn't he? As Prince of Wales, he, he was sort of all over the place. But as king, he was suddenly this extraordinary sort of ambassadorial figure. And the fact that he had spent a lot of time in Paris probably behaving very badly meant that he could um, deal with the French very much and, and that they loved him when he was king and sort of entente cordiale stuff and things like that. And he was a... Uh, he, he ended up as a very popular figure. I think it's um, it's interesting how different they all are. I mean, Francis Donaldson, who wrote the best book about Edward VIII, said he was three different people. As Prince of Wales, he was one thing. As Edward VIII, he was another. And as Duke of Windsor, he was yet a third person. As Prince of Wales, he was popular, much loved, uh, a glamorous figure. As Edward VIII, he was tricky and worried. And as Duke of Windsor, he was kind of whingy and depressed and, you know, always causing trouble, really. Yes. Yes, I suppose I mean the, it, it is it is a lottery, isn't it? If you get quality, you know, bubbling to the surface or if you get somebody I mean Edward VIII, if he'd have been king, could have caused a lot of trouble, especially in the Second World War. Well, I think that's been very much exaggerated, but he could have done. On the other hand, he might have been a very good king. Um he 
he was uh, very keen to modernise, which I think was much needed after George V. George V hadn't changed anything. He was very conventional. Edward VIII wanted to sort of throw the windows open and get things moving and you know, go out amongst the people much more and so forth. He might have been, might have been good. And in fact, it's quite interesting that all the people who've written about him and people who criticise him, even Philip Ziegler, his official biographer, said that, you know, as governor of the Bahamas, um, with Wallace Simpson as Duchess of Windsor at his side, he actually did a pretty good job most of the time. Was he? Did people like him in the Bahamas? I think they did, yes. I think they liked him in the Bahamas, yes. Um, I mean, he had a few things which were very difficult to to handle because he wasn't trained for that sort of thing and and when there was the the, the the harry oaks murder for example that was complicated and there were also a lot of extremely disagreeable characters dangerous figures who were lurking in the bahamas avoiding the war and i'm not sure he was you know as good at dealing with them as as, as some people might have been um, but then, of course, after that, I mean, I, you know, I can't help feeling a bit sorry for him in some ways because, I mean, he had many, many talents and he, you know, and he did, he could be very, very charming if he wanted to be. Um, but, um, but nothing, he couldn't really do anything after that. And then he's just always complaining about the Duchess's title and money and things like that. It was always tricky. Yes. Well, that's something that seems to carry on to this day. Well, it does. Um, and um, George the Sixth, who was the sort of who was the spare, stepped into the role and did rather an amazing job. And some people say maybe it pretty much shortened his life at the same time. Well, that was the the, the accepted view. Um, you could say that his smoking obviously gave him cancer. You could say that if he'd had an easier life, he wouldn't have needed to smoke so much. So there are many arguments on that front. I mean, what I've always thought is that, um, I mean, the Queen Mother was a great one for instructing her ladies-in-waiting and people to tell people like me that she always deferred to the king. Well, that's not quite the case. Basically, she um, wanted him to be a good constitutional monarch and her strength behind the scenes made that possible. She was brilliant with him. Um, Tommy Lassels used to say that he got a bit irritated because the king would say, well, I'll, I'll just hold on to this paper until the morning. I'll let you know what I think. And he knew exactly what was going to happen. He would discuss it with Queen Elizabeth. And why not? She was very, very wise and sensible. I mean, she did a fantastic job with him. She yeah. turned him into a good king, basically. And that, I mean, you've got uh, Victoria and Albert, that sort of the consort, the other half is, um, apart from obviously Elizabeth I, but she had various men, I suppose, didn't she, who she could, they weren't her husbands, but, you know, people um, like Walsingham or... or um, yes, or, and then if it went wrong, they sometimes lost their heads. Then, and things. Yeah, yes. they would lose their sign of the times. And I think also, you know, it's interesting that I've always had the theory that the one time that the Queen acted out of character, Queen Elizabeth II, is by marrying Prince Philip. You know, the Queen Mother was very keen for her to marry Sarah grenadier guard somebody like the duke of grafton or something which wouldn't have been as much of a success but of course by marrying prince philip she got this extraordinary figure who was always you know, challenging everything and must have been exhausting in some ways that long marriage you know do it this way why are you doing it that way have you thought of this you know full of ideas bursting with enthusiasm and things and tremendous support yes one of those abilities in a, in, in, in a relationship um where they can be quite up front with each other and, and quite sort of confrontational, but at the same time they don't put the other person in a corner. So they come out the yes, other side yes. and they've they've come to some decision and they haven't sort of, uh, you know, said something terrible to the other person which could never be forgiven. I think that the reason that Prince Philip was so argumentative in many ways is that by arguing... You, you, you come to an agreement. If you just, oh, yes, sir, that's fine. You don't know what he's thinking at all. Nothing's discussed. And you could win Prince Philip over in an argument. He was prepared to listen. And that's what he liked. He liked people to stand up up to him. And, you know, he liked to have a, a frank discussion. You know, And he liked to get to the heart of the matter. And he would go on and on until he got there. Yes. Very effective. Very good. Well, um, I think uh, we could go on talking about lots of different members of the, of the royal family, but what I'd really like to end on, uh, Hugo, is the um, modernisation of the royal family. And in su to some extent, you've already uh, mentioned, you know, there are other people like the, the transition from George V, uh, that there will be moments, in fact, pro 
throughout the thousand years history it's had to modernize because it's had to give up absolute power okay they lost one head along the way but they came back and the king or queen of queens of today would be unrecognizable to the william the conquerors but it's still the same family link what are the the the, the lessons this is not an impossible question to answer um of modernizing without sort of woke overreach well i think that is extremely interesting i mean if you look at what was going on at the beginning of the queen's reign and the sort of engagements that she did and then the sort of things that she was doing at the end of the reign they even are completely different again i think it was lassels who said that the monarchy was always out of step it was either a step ahead or a step behind and i think in some ways it's always quite good if it's a step behind and then moving forward gradual transition, um, evolution, not revolution, um, you know, just making little changes here and there. Then, of course, if you get a new monarch, they're going to do things differently. And that's what happened. That's the wonderful thing about the hereditary system, in my view, which is very unfashionable to say. But you then get the next generation coming along who will want to do things differently. Uh, even the present king is doing things differently from his mother. We're, we're noticing a few changes here and there, I suppose most notably at the coronation, where things were very different. Um, I confess I find it very, very hard to read this reign at the moment. I can't. I, I could have told you what should or would have happened in the last reign because there were traditions in place. But now it seems to me that everything is changing. Maybe it has to. Maybe that's exactly what it needs to do. And the coronation itself, I, I didn't want to talk too much about that because there's been a lot of talk about it. It's happened quite recently and there's been a lot of coverage on it. But were, So you were a bit surprised at, at the way it was done? It, it was be always like going that. to be <clears throat> somewhat different. I mean, there are certain things that had to happen. Um, I'm a rather, you know, a yesterday's man and a traditionalist and uh, there were certain things that, that I was disappointed didn't happen in the coronation. Um I'm all for inclusivity, but not at the point of excluding um, certain people. And I think that the way they completely excluded the so-called aristocracy, if you like, who are again, uh, you know, hereditary peers, uh, you know, are doing a lot of good work in their area where they live. They, they, they're doing very similar things to the monarch, but at a lower level. And um, they were sort of completely pushed aside, sort of Anton Deck in the hereditary peers out after a thousand years. And that, I thought, was disappointing. I think they could have been a little bit more generous. You didn't want to have, as it happened in 1953, 546 peers and 420 peeresses. No, I wasn't thinking that. But you could have had a little bit more representation, I think. Just Ant, not Deck, or the other way around. Well, you know? I wouldn't have had either of them. <laughs> they could have gone very nicely, I thought, to the concert. So one thing that, um, whether or not you um, agree, say, with um, the king, uh, when he was Prince Charles, you know, he, he, he was very interested in agriculture, conservation, architecture. And because they, they don't have a five-year term and then they might get booted out of office and never be heard of again, you know, he could consistently talk about this thing. And he took quite a lot of, quite a few hits. He talks to plants and all that. He was interested in finding ways to farm that was better for the countryside. And, you know, I have family and my sister even in Ireland. They're all very interested in finding ways. And people like the king could afford to experiment. Whereas a, a farmer who's literally living from year to year on his margins can't afford to go off on an organic romp uh, in case it ruins his business. No, I think um, Prince Charles has been ahead of the game on a great number of things, as indeed was his father, Prince Philip, who was very much talking about green issues way before anybody else. Some of the things that, uh, I, I mean, have been talked about the present, the current generation, uh, William and, and Kate and uh, Harry and Meghan, I suppose, with the sort of things like mental health and so on, it, it's very difficult to get that line between... Clearly, there is things to be done, but going on and on about your mental health isn't going to really win you any any prizes, is it? It's more the doing rather than the... Well, I always thought that that image, for example, of the Queen Mother and the Queen and Princess Margaret 50 years on from D-Day, uh, from the end of the war, rather, uh, V-Day, um, was incredibly uh, emotive because we didn't know what any of those three ladies were thinking. 
And if you know too much about what they're thinking, I think it is a it is a mistake. And the more the more you get quoted, the more it can be quoted back to you and usually to your disadvantage. Um, I think it's interesting that the king, I thought he made a very, very good opening speech the night after the Queen died, and he made it clear that from now on he would be taking a much more backward role as far as speaking out. It uh, doesn't mean he can't speak privately to people behind the scenes. He can still do that to his heart's content. And then, of course, Prince William at the concert after the... Um, coronation the next night he leapt onto the stage like a Shakespearean figure and gave a very good speech and it was quite clear that you know in the future we can expect to hear from him on certain matters but not from his father and that's exactly as it should be. I think Prince Charles knew that his contribution from the point of view of stirring things up would be made as Prince of Wales and not as King and um, he of course understands that that completely. Uh, I also by the way maybe I'm the only person who thought this, that he has every right to write letters to government ministers telling them that he thinks something's going wrong somewhere and that these things should be kept private. Um, They don't have to do anything about it. And the, the great joy of the constitutional system is that if the Queen asked the Prime Minister for... Um, official advice about something, she was constitutionally obliged to take it. If she gave him advice, he didn't have to do anything about it at all, though he would have done well to listen. And just to come back to being the monarch for, for, for the whole country, for everyone in the country, rather than being uh, having the focus on yourself, James Jackson, who I do this podcast with, he reminded me that when the Duke of Edinburgh was interviewed by the BBC, I think it was, and he was asked you know, what he thought about himself, he said something along the lines of, I have never thought about myself. Exactly what I'd expect him to say, yeah. yes. The other great skill that the Queen and Prince Philip had was that they just got on with the job and they just um, never wavered. And the Queen had a very, very clear vision of what it was what it was to be our Queen. And as, as you know, it kind of paid off. I mean, because there were times like when Diana was killed when she was sort of a bit unpopular. She wasn't never that unpopular, but, you know, the, the, the media were getting at her. And she just kept on going straight and yes. never complained or explained anything. I, I think on the whole, that personally, that's a much better way of doing things. Uh, I mean, the closest we got was Annus Horribilis, wasn't it? Um, yes, well, that was a nice wry remark. Yes. yes. <laughs> and it's like those comments where people think, oh, I think I know what that means. But yes. you know, it's in Latin or French. And yes. You can get away with an awful lot by lobbing a sort of slightly non-Anglo-Saxon sentiment at, at a tricky problem. So people scratch their head and think, oh, yes, OK. Yes. I probably agree with that. Yes. Hugo, thank you. It's been fascinating and brilliant. We know more about uh, royalty versus the Republican system. Queen Mary, what a remarkable woman. Uh, The Crown, what a schismatic show. I enjoyed uh, hearing about some of the lesser individuals. It's a tough job and not everyone can survive it. I'm happy to know a bit more about the saintly and brave Princess Alice. Was she called Princess Alice or... Alice, Princess Andrew, because that really is a mouthful. She was either called Princess Alice or Princess Andrew, but I think normally, I mean, the title is Princess Andrew of Greece. Yeah. And lastly, now we know what to ask of our royals to keep them at the centre of our system of governance without them being hijacked by perhaps the tyranny of the minority. I just suddenly thought of one other point that would be nice to make. May I just say Yeah, let's have it. Um... In my view, the most successful members of the royal family are the ones who support the monarch rather than compete with him or her. And I probably don't need to give you any examples as to who I'm thinking about. Yes, well said. Great. Thank you very much, Hugo. So it goes. You've been listening to Bloody Violent History with my guest, Hugo Vickers. You can discover more about Hugo's excellent books on royalty and other subjects from his website, www.hugovickers.co.uk and I will post this link in the show notes. Thanks also to my co-host James Jackson for his input. Please give us a plug and share. You can contact me at talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com Thank you and good luck. Good luck.